Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Door Creek. And if you're a guest, my name's Mark, one of the pastors. Really glad that you're here. So we're in this series called The Storyline. And here's what we're convinced of. It's just way more powerful a thing to know not just the stories of the Bible, but actually the Bible's story. In other words, the stories of the Bible are part of one big story, and it's all centering around the person and the work of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And that's what we're excited about. We want to be rooted, connected, personally, individually, as families, as small groups, as ministries, together around this story. So where we've been so far in our study is we've been at the very beginning, and it's a really good beginning, right? God creates everything out of nothing through the power of his life-giving word. We're created, Adam and Eve, in his image for a relationship with God, right? They're called to join God in this world. Under his rule, they're to rule over every part of creation. They're to care for it. They're to protect it. And they're to fill this world with his image. And they're created in his image, and that means have lots of kids and fill and spread out over this world, filling it with God's image. And they enjoyed this beautiful place called paradise, right? This garden. And everything was good. It was very good in the beginning. And the beautiful life was theirs as they daily trusted God. And what that looked like in the beginning was simply obeying the one simple command that God gave them. Don't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That tree right in the middle of the garden, don't eat it, Adam and Eve, because the day you eat it, you'll what? You're going to die. So don't eat it. And so every day they had a choice. And as they trusted God to define what is good and evil, as they trusted that he's given them everything that they need to enjoy, they were living this beautiful life. It was a beautiful world. It was a beautiful life with God, with each other, with the created world. And then one day, everything changed. In slithers the snake. It's none other, the Bible tells us, than the Satan disguised as a serpent who's a talking snake, and he begins to bring this alternative, this rival word, into the garden. He contradicts God's word, right? He twists God's word. He questions God's word. And at the end of the day, he's getting Adam and Eve to question, is God really good? Are, are his commands to not eat this fruit that would give them the knowledge of good and evil, is that a good thing? Don't they deserve to be like God? Because that's what Satan said would happen, the serpent. And so doubting his goodness, disobeying his clear command, they, in one careless, proud moment, they grab the crown and they give away paradise. And just like that, the consequences begin to flow. The first thing is there's this guilt, right? And, and they sense it. And so they're covering up their nakedness and they're hiding from God because they know there's now evil within them. It's not just a, a cognitive thing. It's a visceral thing. They know it in their own being. And so there's shame, there's guilt, there's hiding, there's blaming, there's conflict with Adam and Eve. There's this separation between them and God. There's a spiritual death. Sin is always separating things, separating them from God. And they're living now in this cursed world where everything's cursed and, and they can expect death, physical death. The, the closest thing they've come to so far is when God graciously provides them with the skins of animals, these new fur coats, if you will, right? Uh, there's, there's these lifeless dead 
animals or maybe one animal, I don't know, right, that, that's there. But now they're, they're moving out. God pushes them out of the garden. He bars entrance back into the garden. The cherubim, the many holy angels are around the entrance of the garden. And there's this flaming sword, it says, going back and forth, preventing them from going. And so there's consequences. But that wasn't the only thing. Th there was this wonderful kind of just passing, passing word of promise that is really an important part. It's the first glimmer of light of good news in all that went bad on that day. And it's this passing comment when he's uttering this word of judgment on Satan, the serpent, and he basically says, look, your seed and Eve's seed, there, there's going to be conflict, and one of her sons is going to crush your head. He's going to defeat you. And in the conflict, you're going to bruise his heel. And then on the narrative goes, talking to Eve and the pain and childbearing and the conflict in her marriage and then how hard work is going to be for Adam and how he's going to return to the dust. And it's really important that we catch it, that sin is serious, that God actually deals with it justly, and that there actually are consequences, but that's not just it. And that's really important as we find ourselves living in this dislocated place called the world that's been broken and fractured because of our own wanting to do life without God. And so there's consequences. I mean, like real consequences that come because of our own shortcomings or somebody else's. And the question is, what, do we, what should we expect? What should God's people expect when we know we sinned or somebody else's sinned and there's consequences that are hard? I mean, should we expect that just, you know, you know, the, you know the proverb, a man reaps what he sows. So you sowed that seed, and that's what you're going to reap. Dude, you made your bed, now you're going to lie in it, and that's just the way it is. And it's really important to know the answer that the Bible gives to what should we expect. What should we expect if we wake up one day and go, oh, my word, I've done it all wrong in my marriage. I'm supposed to love the Lord with all my heart. I'm supposed to love my wife like Christ. I'm supposed to lead my family to Christ. And, man, I'm not loving God. I'm loving myself. My work is more important than my wife, and my kids are probably more important than my wife. And I think I'm going to be losing my marriage now. So, so what do we expect? Well, that, that's just what happens. That's just the end of the story. Is that the final word? In, in, a, in, a, in a moment of indiscretion, been unfaithful in a relationship, in, in a moment of, of lapse of character, you, you lose your job, you lose your standing in your degree program, you're, you're kicked off the team. Is, is that, is that it? Is that, is that how should we, what should we expect comes next? Do we get a do-over or is this it? Well, the story line as we start unpacking it today from chapter 315 the promise of a son, this wounded victor, all the way to 12.3, the promise of another son. So when we see things like that, we call them a bookend. These are a bookend. And what we're going to see is when the circumstances weigh us down, so the circumstances of our sin, somebody else's sin, when they weigh us down, it's the promise of God that is meant to lift us up. 
That's where we find hope. And we're going to chase it through now. And so buckle up, guys, because we're going through a lot of scripture and um, we're, we're actually going to get it done on time, all right? So here we go. So chapter four, you might want to open your Bible and see if I'm telling you God's word here. So it's a story of Cain and Abel. Cain is a son, first son, and he, uh, he's a farmer. And Abel is a shepherd. And God says, guys, I want you to worship me and bring an offering. And Cain brings the wrong offering. And God is pleased with the offering of the animal that Abel brings, and he's displeased with what Cain brings. And Cain is furious. He is in a jealous rage that God doesn't approve his offering and that his brothers did, and he's ready to kill his brother. And God meets him, and he says, Hey, look, sin is crouching at the door, verse 7, and its desire is to control you, to rule you. And he gives into that desire, and the text tells us, he says, Hey, brother Abel, I want you to check out some fields of mine and see, see this new stuff that we're growing here. It's awesome. Whatever he said, they go out to the field and he kills them. So here it is. The image of God is not an animal. It's the image of God is lifeless there in the field. And we can only imagine the heartache of Adam and Eve. So what happens next is God says, hey, by the way, Cain, Where's your brother Abel? He says, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer in the text, though you won't read these words, is yeah. Yeah, when I ask you to actually rule over the world, that means to care for and protect it. Yeah, I included your brother too. You are your brother's keeper. And by the way, his blood's been crying out to me for justice. So what, what, what have you done? What have you done? And he says, here it is, you're cursed the land that you're working on is no longer going to produce a harvest, a crop, fruit, vegetables. And uh, I'm, I'm chasing you away. You're going to be a restless wanderer. And as he's catching up with the consequences of his sin, he says to God, this is too much. God, this is too much for me to bear. I'm going to leave this place where I've been protected in this space, and I'm going to be killed. They're going to kill me. So God makes a promise. So here we see. Sin Judgment, consequences, a promise. God makes him a promise. He says, you know what? I'm not going to let anybody harm you. I'm just going to let it know right now. If anybody harms you, I, I'm going to perfectly retaliate. Seven-time retribution for anybody that takes your life. And I'm going to put a mark on you as a sign of this promise. And everybody's going to see this distinguishing mark on you, Cain. And I don't know what it looked like, but if you and I saw it, I think we'd do something like, whoa, who's this guy? I think I'm going to stay away from this guy. God said, I'm going to protect you. Chapter 4 ends. Adam and Eve have another son. His name is Seth. And it's through Seth's line then that the promised Savior, the son of Eve, is going to come. Not from wicked Cain. Chapter 5. Grab your Bible. In chapter 5, there's a repeated phrase. When we see a repeated phrase, we go, probably important. So let's see if you can find the repeated phrase. Verse 5, Adam lived a total of 930 years and then he died. Verse 8, sorry, chapter 5, verse 8. Seth lived 912 years, then he died. Verse 11, Enos lived 905 years, then he died. Are you getting it? 14, Canaan lived 910, then he died. Mahalalel, 895 and 17, then he died, right? Altogether, Jared, verse 20, lived 962, then he died. Methuselah, chap, verse 27, 
Nine or 69, then he died. Last one, 31, Lamech. 777 years, and then he, what's the word? He died. Everybody's dying. Everybody's dying. Why are they dying? Because that's what sin does. It separates us from the giver and sustainer of life. We say we don't want to do, we don't know life with God. We cut ourselves off from God. We allow sin to separate us from God. Well, when we're separating ourselves from the source of life, spiritually, that's why the Bible says we're dead in our sin. It spiritually kills us and it leads to death. They're all dying, except, and we're always looking for these, and we're reading through this as we're reading our Bible. And we go, whoa, this is different. Look at 24. <laughs> Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more. Where'd he go? He disappeared. Why? Because God took him away. Meaning he didn't what? He didn't die. Everybody's dying. Why are they dying? Because that's the result of sin. In fact, the Bible says in the New Testament, the wages, the result of sin is separation. Physical sin, it's death. Physical, spiritual. Everybody's dying. Why are they dying? Because they're all sinners. That's what happens. Man, they lived a long time before the flood, right? A long time. But they all died, except this man who walked faithfully. What does that mean? He trusted God. What is the significance here? Ah, it's powerful. Let me read to you words from one of the biblical scholars that I had a chance to study under twice at Trinity and at Bethel College. His name is John Salham, and he just went to be with the Lord just, just like in the last two weeks here. So good. In fact, it's one of the resources we have for you in the storyline. Just a really great little compact, one-volume short commentary of the whole scriptures. He put it this way. It's so good. The pronouncement of death, in other words, and he died, is not the last word. See, the, the promise is the last word for those who trust. This is, this is, I catch up with it. This is where, right where we're at. The consequences, sin, judgment, death, heartache, is, is not the last word. A door is left open for a return to the tree of life which symbolizes eternal life. Enoch found the door. How? By walking with God and has become a paradigm for all who seek life. That's, that's beautiful. And we don't want to miss that. So then we get to chapter 6. Now we hit bottom. I mean, we hit the very bottom. So there's this downward spiral. We go from Adam and Eve's careless, you know, taking the crown and losing the garden to fratricide, right? Cain killing his brother, and, and all these people dying in chapter 4, in chapter 5, and then chapter 6, we just hit rock bottom. Look at verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. There's no wiggle there. None. Every inclination, only evil all the time. You think it's bad in Chicago right now, and it is? You think it's bad in Sudan? where almost a million people I've read recently have died? You think it's bad in Aleppo with all the bloodshed in Syria there? It, it was, you think it was bad in World War II and 50 to 60 million people? Worse, worse here. And we read verse 6, that the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. 
but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so there's the spread of wickedness. Every inclination of the heart was always only evil all the time. And the evil that it goes on to talk about is just this violence, just this violence. And so God raises up Noah. Noah's name means rest, comfort. When his dad names him, he says, he's going to give us rest from all this hard work that we do here, working this hard soil. He's going to bring us rest and comfort. And he's the one, actually, who carries on God's salvation plan by obeying God when he said, hey, Noah, I want you to build a boat. All right. What's it going to look like? It's a big one. This is that, so some of us, you know, we've done the kayak thing, we've done the canoe thing, so imagine this. 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet tall. This is a big boat that took him decades to build. He says, I want you to build a boat. And Noah sets off to do that, obeying God, being faithful, taking God at his word. In 1 Peter 3.20, it tells us this. God waited patiently in the days of Noah. So it's easy to hear the story of Noah and go, oh, that's that Old Testament God. I don't like that God. Because he just wipes everybody out. He's just crazy mad about everything and everyone. Here's a, here, here's a story. It says, in the days of Noah, God waited patiently. What was he waiting for? Noah, would you get this boat built already? Was that it? No, he was waiting patiently extending mercy to people who didn't care about him that he loved and wanted to have trust him and come into a relationship with him. He waited patiently for a long, long time. And the Bible says they, they were clueless. They didn't heed the warnings. Moses was a preacher of righteousness. So that's what Peter tells us. So he wasn't just a boat builder. He wasn't just a carpenter. But every board he saw, every nail he dro drove in there, the pitch he put on every seam, he was telling people and anybody who came, what, here's why I'm building this boat. Because God told me he's going to judge us and wipe us all out. And so we got to turn to God. we got to stop this violence. We got to turn to God and ask for forgiveness. He's a preacher of righteousness, and they just didn't get it. And Jesus actually believes the story because he said this. He said, actually, that's exactly how it's going to be right before I come back again. Jesus says, I'm coming back. And before I come back, people are not going to be ready for my return when he comes back to judge and make all things right. So Noah's found favor. It tells us in chapter 6, Verse 9, that he's a righteous man, that he's blameless among the people, and he walked faithfully with God. So he's loving God, he's loving his neighbor, he's doing it all right, he's faithful, he's doing everything just as God commanded him, chapter 6, verse 22. And so he gets on the ark, he gets two of every kind, right, and some more for some other animals, but he gets his wife, he gets his three sons, they're wise, they're all on the ark, closes the door, and they're in that ark for a year and ten days. That's a whole other sermon. It's got a lot of interesting smells, I'm sure, but we're not going there. So they get off the boat, and the first thing he does is he builds an altar. He worships God, takes some of the animals, and he sacrifices them, and the incense goes up, and God is pleased. And right there, in the midst of judgment, coming through it, there's a promise. And here it is, chapter 8, verse 21. 
and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. And so he says to Noah, I want you to do the same thing I told Adam and Eve, chapter 9, verse 1. I want you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with my image. That's what I want you to do. And then he says, just so you know, I'm keeping my word. And do you remember the promise I made? I'm going to put a sign between heaven and earth to remind you. The rainbow, chapter 9, verse 12. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant. So the promise to Eve, uh, to the promise to Cain, there's a sign, right? There's a distinguishing mark to remind him, I'm going to protect you. I'm not going to let people kill you. Now he makes a promise, I'm never going to again wipe out all the earth with a flood. And now there's a sign, and the sign is the rainbow. This is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I've set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant, of the promise between me and the earth. And so we remember that. We remember the mercy of God. We remember his judgment. We remember the promise to never do that again. We remember that. So then we're asking ourselves, okay, so then is Noah, he's like a really good guy, right? God's starting over with Noah. So is this the son of Eve that's going to crush the enemy's head? And the story quickly lets us know, nope, not that guy. Because what happens? He goes and he plants a garden. Kind of reminds us of what God did. He, he, right? He plants a garden. He puts Adam and Eve in it. So Noah starts out in the garden. And he's growing all this good stuff, including grapes. And apparently he made some really good wine because he drank a lot of it one night and he got drunk. And he ends up in his tent naked, bringing shame on himself and a curse to Ham's family, specifically Ham's son Canaan. And what happens is we don't know. All the Bible says is, is that, that, that Ham walked into the tent and he saw his father's nakedness. And he went out and told his brothers, and his brothers walked in backwards to cover it up. They didn't put their eyes on it. So we don't know if anything happened. We don't know if he just mocked him. All we know, it was really bad, and a curse came on his family. And that's how chapter N 9 ends. Ham's family, Cain and his son, the Canaanites, are under a curse, and Noah dies. And we get to chapter 10. Maybe what is chapter 10 about? If you got chapter 10 in your Bible, it probably says something like the Table of Nations. Mine does. And you'll see things like headings like the Japhethites. Who are they? Well, they're the sons of Japheth. That's his family tree. The Hamites. Who are the Hamites? They're the people who like bacon. No. They, the Hamites are the, the family of Ham. And then you'll see the Semites. These are the descendants of Shem. And that's the line that Abram's going to come from. So what we have here is this listing of 70 nations that all come from Noah's family. And at the end of the chapter, it says this. So just note this. At the end of chapter 10, verse 32, these are the clans of Noah's sons, according to their lines of descent. Within their nations, from these, the nations spread out, keywords spread out over the earth after the flood, just as God commanded. Be fruitful, multiply, spread out, fill the earth with my image. All right, so we got that. So now we get to, to the last story. And this is a bookend story to the story in Genesis 3.15. You hear it, and you hear the promise after it, and you go, oh man, this rings. There's a lot of similarities here from the garden story and the Tower of Babel. So verse 1. 
chapter 11. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar, that's Babylonia, and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. This is the latest technology, right? They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortars, faster, quicker, better, right? Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, and here's why, so that we may make a name for ourselves, so that we'd be great, so we'd be famous, a name for ourselves. Otherwise, yeah, we don't hunger down in this city. Otherwise, we're just going to be scattered over the face of the whole earth, and we're going to be vulnerable. But the Lord came down to see the city. Apparently, he didn't get that high. He had to come down and see that little Lego project down there. <laughs> the Lord came down to the city, and the tower to see the city and the tower the people were be building. And the Lord said, If as one people speak in the same language, they begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, confuse their language, so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That's why it's called Babel, which means confusion. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Chapter 10, we meet up with this guy named Nimrod who actually builds this city. He's the first one who, who built Babel. His name means we shall rebel. Wow. A little bit of foreshadowing going on there. And how they rebel. Well, they disregarded God's clear command to go spread out and fill the earth, right? Now they're coming together. And they're doing more than that. They're not just planning their own secure, walled city to protect them, but they're now trying to chase down how they're going to be and find significance in this world. And in their pride, they build a tower, right? And this tower in the ancient city was probably very much, in the ancient world at that time, they had these towers that were like steps going up where they, they would do worship. They're saying, we're going we're to build all the way up. We're going to build it all the way up. We're going to get there. We're going to get to the place where God, we're going to get so we are in God's place. Okay? So Adam and Eve say, we want the crown. The people of Babel say, we, we, we want the throne. We, we, we're going we're gonna to build our way up so we are seated there. And why are they doing this? For the purpose of making their name great. And so God comes down and he judges, not their building projects, but the architecture of their hearts that are filled with arrogance and pride. And chapter 11 ends connecting Noah's family from Adam's all the way to Shem, and it's through Shem's family that this guy, Abram, comes to the sea. Now, that's what we studied all fall. But let's just look at it again, because here's the final promise. Here's the final promise that echoes and mirrors that promise in 3.15. Then the Lord had said, this is 12, 1 through 3. Then the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So now this word of promise is bringing blessing, whereas their sin has always been bringing the curse. So what we have here 
is the reversal of the curse. So the first thing he says, I'm going to give you land. What happened to Adam and Eve when they sinned? They, had, they, they were banished from the land, from God's presence. God says, I, I'm, I'm going to put you back in, in this promised land. That by the way, as you chase that theme throughout the scripture, that land isn't the geography physically of Israel here, Palestine here on earth, but it's actually of this space where we live with God forever, the, the new heaven, the new earth. That's where it all chases down. He says, I'm going to give you land. I'm asking to leave your, your land, but I'm going to give you land. Then he says, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you lots of descendants. That was pretty important because this guy, 75, his wife, 65, no kids. He says, I, I, I'm going to do that. Then, then it, our ears are really ringing when he says, I'm going to make your name great. Oh, what were the people doing in Babel? They were building a tower. Why? To make their name great. He says, no, that, that's actually what I do. That's what I do. It's in, in relationship with me that you find greatness, that you find significance, that you find security, that you flourish. And then he says, I'm going to bless you. I'll bless everybody who blesses you. I'll curse those who curse you. But here's why I'm going to bless you. So that all the families, what does that mean? Well, everybody in chapter 10, those 70 nations and all the clans. But all the families, we find out, means all the families. Like your family, like my family, and, and the families spread around the world who's ever lived and whoever will live around the world. I, I'm blessing you so that all the families will be blessed. And this is nothing less than the promise of the gospel. So the little glimmer of, hey, by the way, he's going to have a son. He's going to have a son. He's going to be this wounded victor, and he's going to take care of the enemy. And then God says, well, the son's going to do more than just defeat the enemy. He's going to bring blessing. That's not, a, that's not like this warm, fuzzy word. It has substance to it. It means God's care, his protection, his power in us that cares for us, protects us, and causes us to flourish like today in a broken world, not just in that new place where everything's right. So Abel, he, he was actually flourishing in a, in a fallen world, right? Enoch, who walked with God and was not, he was flourishing as he trusted God. Noah was doing that. And all who trust in this promised son can understand that sin, judgment, and the consequences that weigh us down, that's not the final word. So what word are you believing today? See, the enemy comes and, and says, well, you're, you're just a loser, my fear, and you know who you are, you know what you did, and how could God ever love you, and how, why would God ever use you, and you wallow in it, and you let that be the final word. And it takes us, it moves us away from God. It disengages us from his work in this world. And we're weighed down with this. And we're just looking for things to self-medicate as we're dealing with all this crap in our life. And, and that's where we're stuck. And so wh what are we believing? See, there, there, there's more here. And it's repeated. We see this repeated four times. Sin, judgment, consequences, promise, 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 promise. This doesn't have to be the final word. And look, you don't have to live very long where you go, man, I wish I could get a do-over. Ah, oh, I wish I'd never had that careless moment. I, I wish I'd never acted in, in just this deep hatred. You know, just these regrets. We all have them. And these, these consequences are graces that remind us, sin serious, 
don't do that again. I need a Savior every day. And my, o- my only hope is in Christ, the promised Son. And so we ask ourselves, you know, what's ruling us today? Cain was ruled by his hateful jealousy. What, what's, what, what's ruling our hearts? What's, what's in control? It, it, is it to get back? Is it to, to build something so that we're great academically, in our looks, our body, our relationship, our marriage, our family, just some kind of good thing that's twisted, making a lot of money? Is it, it, what, what, what is it? What, what's ruling us? The, the only one, and the only one that we're safe with is God. Every other thing that we would have rule us ruins us. It ruins us. And so when we come into this kind of a teaching, the first response is we, we, we want to repent. That's such an old-fashioned word, but it's such a good word. It just means we want to have a change of mind that leads to a change of action. Think of a U-turn sign. I, I, th- I'm going in this direction, and it's killing me, and it's hurting other people. I, I got I to gotta start. I, my, my happy days, my best days are with God. I got to trust Him. And, and so we turn away as we confess these things. We've never confessed our sin. Well, one of the first things we need to know is we don't have to carry the guilt. And God gives us peace through what his son has done on the cross. And, and so we, we do that. And then we just keep every day trusting in Jesus. So think about the stories that we've just done. And just think about how Jesus is so different. They're tempted once, Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Just to play God for a day, for a moment, a careless moment to seize the crown. And what does Jesus do? He's tempted throughout his life and he never gives in. They grab the crown, he gives up the crown. They want to be like God, he becomes man. What does Cain do? He plots his brother's violent death. And Jesus agrees with God, the scriptures say before the creation of the world, that he would come and be murdered. He does it, Cain does it out of hatred. God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, out of their deep love for us. That's the one we're trusting in, that promised son. Enoch walked with God and he was not. Jesus walked with God and he was hung on a cross. Everybody in Noah's day was wiped out for their sin. The innocent son of God was wiped out for all sin, all time. Noah gives in in this moment of excess and in a drunken stupor brings shame and a curse. Jesus on the cross is offered wine to numb the pain, right? And he refuses. And he hangs naked. Noah, that story ends, he's covered up. His nakedness is covered up. Not Jesus, the perfect son of God hangs naked and they spat at him and they mocked him and they laughed him. Come on, man, if you're the son of God, come on down. And he could have done it in an instant. And he could have called 10,000 angels and ended the whole thing there. But he didn't build a wall around his life. He went outside the city of Jerusalem 
and he was crucified. And the people that built this pathway up to God through their own whatever, Jesus, he came down, Emmanuel, to be with us. With us. That's who we trust in. That's our hope. And so I, I don't know the stuff of your life that's weighing you down. But let the promise of God's son, the promised son, lift you up and give you hope. And with that, great joy in this life, meaning, security, significance, work to do that matters for eternity. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for those who um, have never turned their, their sin over to you. I pray that you'd give them clarity of what they've done, that they might bring it to you and believe with all their heart, Lord Jesus, that you paid for that on the cross. I pray that you would take away the guilt of our hearts and you I would pray Lord that you would strengthen us to just walk in faith Lord I, I pray for those who've never trusted you to trust you today for the first time for those who have been but have wandered that, that they would today trust you again that you by your grace would give them faith to hang on to you and Lord Jesus we're just amazed at who you are and God, your response to us. And we pray that that would define how we deal with the past, how we live today, and how we think about the future. And that would set us free to love you with everything that we have and set us free as we're filled with your loving grace to pour out our lives, to give our lives away for the people you've called us to care for and protect until you come. Call us on. We pray this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.